This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Spice Bags, where three opinionated ladies, Blanca, May and me, Dee, have a dish about food in Ireland from an international perspective. Welcome to Spice Bags. Um, our podcast episodes, if you're new to Spice Bags, come in three delectable flavors. Deep dives, which are comprehensive explorations into a country's cuisine. Staple chats, where we dish about a topic amongst ourselves. And conversations with individuals who have been impactful on the international Irish scene. Pick a flavor, and we hope you like more than one. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about magazines, food magazines which Dee and May have loads of experience, where I was just the lowly intern that had to alphabetize all the books. Um, so let's start with our favorite categories of magazines. And May is going to introduce us to nerdy magazines that talk about food and her favorite nerdy magazines. Well, my favorite nerdy magazine was um, something called Cooks Illustrated. Um, and that was started by Christopher Kimball. And he it was, I think, a vanity project, which I think a lot of nerdy magazines mm. are, right? Because they're not financially viable. So he had a test kitchen, and they would just basically test recipes about 40 times over. And, you know, and it was illustrated not by photography, but by illustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was just a really beautiful thing. The other nerdy magazines that I loved was actually both British and American Vogue had the best food columns, which I just found incredibly hilarious, right? Because most people who read Vogue, you know, want to be anorexic. And um, (laughs) but, you know, so I remember um, when I was in university in London um, reading the food column by this young up and comer called Nigella Lawson. Uh, who would, you know, who would basically tell us, it's like, okay, you know what? Like, here's the latest color, beautiful colors of Le Creuset, et cetera. Um, And then when I worked at American Vogue, the food guy was a man called Jeffrey Steingarten, who was a lawyer. And uh, and he would get pretty much 5,000 words. Um, And... And a huge budget. Sorry, 5,000 words means a lot. It's a long form. 5,000 words and a massive budget. You know, he would concentrate on something like caviar or he would concentrate on something like the new the new sort of non-Michelin bistros in France or hot chocolate. And he would, you know, he would travel there. And then, or actually, the one I remember is also Coco Vin, where he scoured New York trying to find a rooster to <laughs> kill to make Coco Vin. So, um, so those... For me, ironically, Vogue had the nerdiest food content. Jeffrey Steingarten, his book, The Man Who Ate Everything, is amazing. But just it's just dripping with privilege. It's like, oh, it's dipped in gold. He's He was just somebody very privileged, it seemed, from reading the book. I think it was also because he was given a huge lot of budget. A huge budget. Anna Wintour, who, you know, is a twig, and I did work at Vogue and for Jeffrey, but she really wanted to have the best food column in the nation, right? And that, you know, and so, and she threw money at that. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I like finding food columns in less obvious places, like you said, in fashion magazines. Um, I think sometimes for me as well, that's why 
some of the food and travel magazines or travel magazines that have food columns that cover that can be also maybe a more obvious fit, but also as well, some of my favorites, like the Nat Geo tra- food travel and things like that. Now we're going to move on to glossy and beautiful food styling and photography. D, what are your picks for these types of magazines? I just think that for me, um, I found that um, Delicious magazine always had the most amazing spreads and Olive magazine as well. But for me, Delicious was just the one that I always literally was just salivating, looking at the food photography, the styling, just absolutely beautiful, the effort that went into it. I love photography myself. I love design. So I just always have had kind of fallen into that creative director role sometimes as well on shoots and working with photographers and and learning that skill and that art and what makes food look good. And I think there's a whole a whole other episode in kind of how to make food look good in food photography and styling, which we could do. But um, yeah, for me, they were the they were the magazines. Um, without access when I was growing up to the to the US ones. May, do you have any US ones that literally the food jumped off the page? I mean, I think that um, there was uh, the more conventional ones, right? You know, in where you have, you know, beautiful, like beautiful photography would be something like gourmet. Um, yeah. But then Sever then brought in this idea of almost bringing in a National Geographic kind of, you mm-hmm. know, so people holding the food. So... That was, you know, so yeah, so you with have lovely dish. nail polish, with yes, lo- or not like with- Alison Roman. It's like oh, <laughs> gro- like you could get booted out of Cordon Bleu for wearing nail polish. Sorry. But no, but but like, but you know, but you go to Cambodia, you go, you know, and like it's a, it's a, it was about like the place, right? Yeah. And you know, it was about the place, and it was about the person who made it, and and the food, you know, and them them holding the dishes. And I thought that that was an interesting, um, I thought that was interesting styling. Um, a shout out to Canal House. I don't know if you girls know Canal know House. Canal House is um, it's technically a book that is published four times a year, and um, it's a photographer and a food stylist who have been around the block many times. Melissa Hamilton and Christopher Hersheimer, both actually from Sever, uh, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's like that Alice Waters gorgeous though, right? Yeah. It's that that's almost a throwback um but it's beautiful. I think some of the magazines as well that really for me went all out in terms of of design or photography. Excuse me, about the ones that were more like journals like you're saying like serial or for me is just absolutely, you know, would be very artistic, yeah. very beautiful, give full pages to literally just the photographs or like a photograph led, photography led um, essay of like just food. It was just stunning um, and ingredients as well, just raw ingredients. Also, Les Gourmands for me, I just think they always yeah. I, this one um, feature, a photography feature that I saw in I think it's in the issue with the cookie monster on the front cover and it's has the um the snake has like snails and insects as part with the food as part of the photog- the photo shoot and it's almost that thing of like you don't shoot food like like food you're shooting it like a different type of shoot you know like it's like in I, I love some of my favorite food photography is the ones that are shot like a fashion shoot more than a food photography shoot because you're just very abstract, very different and giving food a whole different spin and really just aspirational and inspirational and abstract. And I just love that. 
I think we're forgetting the the queen of food styling, Donna Hay. And and Donna Hay yes. started working mm-hmm. in Australia on Women's Weekly. And really, when her work started coming out, people were amazed because it was so simple. And before that, it had to be like a candelabra, a cat, <laughs> your grandmother, <laughs> and then a soup. And when Donna Hay came, it was really, really simple. And still, she's so, so successful. And her magazine is beautiful. Her magazine is beautiful. And I, her magazine always just the color, just white. Like she introduced so much white. As you said, food styling and photography before it was just so it's like a still life portraiture or something um uh <laughs> still life portraiture was like still life but donna hay just brought this like openness and just fresh like simple and clean and, and clean. simple and it's yeah. hard to do that i think you know always you want to put more things on the table um talking about australian women's weekly can we now talk about recipes that work because let's be honest so many recipes are absolute bullshit Longa, I think you need to talk about no, Australian I just, Women's yeah. Weekly. Well, I love Australian <laughs> Women's Weekly. And in Books for Cooks, we were always, you know, recommending. The, the, if you want something that really works, like for cakes, because they really test. Can you tell us recipes. a little bit more for, you know, listeners who might not know what Australian Women's well, Weekly I'm is? Well, I'm talking about the books, but Australian Women's Weekly is a magazine. Um, it's like a women's magazine. But then they started going into publishing. And Donna Hay comes from the, the Australian Women's Weekly family. But they really have um, an emphasis on testing and on ingredients and on knowledge. So all their books and magazines have a lot of detail. And the food then became, um, the styling became really, really professional and really good. But I would say that's something that's not glamorous, like gourmet or you know, food and wine, but it still works and the recipes are delicious. And it, they don't age. Uh, because that's another thing. I think a lot of magazines, I collect a lot of old magazines and you look at the recipes and they've aged. Yeah. And mm. I don't know how to explain that. That. Yeah. But some things age and some things don't. So Australian Women's Weekly were so at, ahead of the game that I think they yeah. didn't age. I don't know. I follow this, in, um, it's not Instagram's Twitter account called like 70s dinner party or something. I was just going to ask if you guys follow Yeah, and it's my favorite account. Like, it's just so funny. And they just post um, pages from old magazines from the 70s um, and food photography from the 70s. And not only are obviously some of the recipes ridiculous, Mm -hmm. but um, the food photography, everything is just brown. I know sometimes as an editor, you'd say, oh, don't have too much beige, don't have things too much brown in the photograph, bring color. But this is like extreme. This is like there's a filter on there to make it look like it's everything in the room is brown even. But um, also just, yeah, it definitely like a still life, uh, still life Lots setup. Lots of green jello. Lots of green jello with fish and things yeah. in it. Like really weird. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's so weird. much fun if you, you should look it up. It's really good. But also now food styling has gone the other way that oh, yeah. you'll do anything mm. to get color. And I hate there's so many Instagram accounts that are just like like smoothies or gelatines or things like yes. in different colors and like a kiwi and a strawberry. And you're like, you're just doing this for the color. Who cares? I also hate, I just have to say, being in the industry and working on shoots and things like that. Food photography has gone so far. It actually does food a, a like a disservice in terms of it's trying to make food look too perfect and I think some photographers and stylists you know they need to really rein that back in and editors and and things and we need to just look at real food and 
And I, I, you know, you if you talk to any stylist, they'll tell you about like Christmas shoots where you have to varnish the turkey and, you know, you're stapling, they're stapling the turkey together to make it look like proper. And, you know, just so many different things that have to be done for food styling. And all of that food goes to waste because it's been touched, it's been manipulated and everything. And I just think actually it's there's a huge amount of food waste when it comes to food photography. And it's something I really dislike. So I always try and shoot natural shots um, you know, and then try and use the food afterwards, even if it's just splitting it among the team. And I just think we need to move towards that ha- actually shooting real food. Talking about real food, um, there's a lot of health food magazines, a lot. And I'm going to say something for people who don't know, the library has an app called Libby in, in Ireland where you can find so many magazines from across the globe, including, I think, 30 food magazines. How do you spell that? Sorry. Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. Okay. So it's an app that allows you, you can read The Economist, you can read uh, Bon Appetit for free. So if anybody with a library card, go and get this this app. But at health magazines, like these food health magazines, clean eating, light eating, it's... Who's buying these magazines? You know, so many people. So many people. Are. So many people. That's the thing. And I think they really, you know, obviously health would have been part of food magazines originally. And, you know, it just was evident that there was a real niche to kind of separate it into its own category. But I think it's also kind of gotten out of control in terms of, I mean, you know, it's that thing of you're taking you're making out that the food in those magazines is different from the real food in, in normal magazines. And mm. it's it's all one in the same, but it's just targeting specific people and and people's insecurities. Right. So, you know, and and people's lifestyles. And I just think healthy food also needs to be careful because or like those it, when you look at those magazines, because they're driving that um they're drawing negativity around food, like the yeah. word clean eating, all those terms that are, are associated with those health magazines. I really worry about that kind of um, that focus. What about magazines that are huge uh, circulation? Um, I read a statistic that Taste of Home in America has the largest really? circulation. <laughs> and for anybody who doesn't know Taste of Home, this is really um, American, like pie recipes that they have a, a test kitchen. They're, I think they're based in the Midwest, but huge circulation. What other magazines can we think of like that have a huge circulation? And I can think of a Spanish one, Hello Magazine, like their recipes and their um, food um, magazines that they publish maybe once a year are huge sellers. I was actually just, when you were just bringing that up, I was thinking of Good Housekeeping Magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Which in a weird yeah. way, like was almost the playboy for housewives because for a long time they had all these amazing writers like Shirley Jackson and I think Dorothy Parker wrote for them so there was like this again there was like this combination of recipes Mm -hmm. and amazing fiction and memoir right and I don't think they I don't think they've maintained that um, but I do know that their test kitchen is impeccable. I was an intern <laughs> at, in London in Good Housekeeping, and I had to test a recipe five times, and it didn't work. And they were looking at me weird, and I was like, I'm sorry, no, this is something wrong with the recipe. Um, in the end, it wasn't published. But yeah. What about in the States? I presume Martha Stewart's magazines have huge readership as yes, well. Yes, yes. 
But they're more... And Rachel Ray? Yeah, Rachel, Rachel Ray, Ray, of yeah. course. Australia as well has, like, their delicious magazine there as well has yeah. huge readership. But I think the, like, if you look at Taste of Home, I think Taste of Home sells more magazines than all the other magazines combined. I sometimes get the Taste of Home Christmas special because yeah. I feel like it's just that all-rounded, that's when I accept the kind of... Uh, conservative traditionalness of it yeah. if you know what I mean I love it then the recipes but are good yeah, I think, yeah. the recipes are I good mean, but it's, it is a strange one but it's I think also it's I mean and um, you guys can you know jump down my throats here but it's also this idea of almost like um, cooking magazines for the masses yes as opposed to this like there's a there used to be a, this idea of like a snooty cooking magazine oh, and that definitely. would be almost like you know the vote like you know gourmet it's like oh you know this is, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you have something like Taste of Home where you have Rachel Ray where people can identify with both the writing and the recipes and they're like, you know, we're one of you, like the editors and everything like that, that the content. Um, and maybe that's why they do so I well. have to say something about Gourmet Magazine. My friend Eve, um, who was very posh, her dad cooked Vietnamese food. I'm talking this is like in the 80s in Costa Rica when I was growing up. They had Gourmet Magazine. And of course, I had rice and beans almost every day because my mom didn't want to cook. She only cooked for her friends. So uh, I remember reading Gourmet Magazine. And I think about it now, just how the privilege of those like spreads and the writers. But it was always, it was never explained. And I think, you know, there's a lot of academics who study this, that a lot of the times these magazines don't give you the context. It's just like... There's yeah. D in her private island and she has three helicopters, but yeah. they don't tell you, oh, D's dad is so and so. And I think this is something that I saw in Gourmet Magazine as a teenager that I didn't realize till later, like how privileged. But you were obsessed with it, right? I was, I, was, I was obsessed with it. My architect aunt, who was the poshest in my family, would have these stacks of gourmets yeah. and like it would be like yachts and boat shoes and like blue blue and styles. Paris and Paris <laughs> and, and Paris, Paris. <laughs> it was <laughs> never anywhere it else was like it was like and just go through them like so hungrily being like I wish I was I want to grow up to be one of these people <laughs> yeah, and you wonder how did you, you know you knew and you did yeah and they did but it's it's weird how and I, and I, I, I still see it like even like on Instagram or people like now I'm always like what's behind this you know what's mm. What's the behind the spread? Or there, there's a really famous food personality in Spain now that does cheeses. And when you look at her, once again, we're going into Instagram, which is the new food magazines. <laughs> is yeah. Just this privilege and wealth and whatever. And you're like, w w hold on. What's going on? It's, And I think that food magazines were able to do that really, really well until... Until Ruth, Ruth Reichel yeah. came along. I mean, it's not exactly like Ruth Reichel and like created this communist democracy um, for gourmet but she did change it up and I you know and I just found that you know she was looking for like fresh new writers she was looking like again she changed up the New York Times mm. uh, when she was a food critic you know and very famously she her first review for the New York Times was Le Cirque right and so she reviewed it as a New York Times VIP and went undercover and did it as a Midwestern housewife and she complained <laughs> yeah and she's this so is like it's so amazing, right? And so she's like, "Here's your two different experiences, you know." And um, and so gourmet, you know, when she took over, yeah, was like a lot more ethnic food, a lot of humor. Um, producers, our, producers, our old pod, our our former podcast host Julia Langbein mm -hmm. was picked up by Ruth Reichel, um, 
and she did you know and Julia had was writing this thing called the Bruni Digest where she just basically took down the New York Times um, current food critic and just you know was laughing and like Rachel was like I want that voice do you know yeah, and yeah. so I just thought that was you know and there was just there was such a shift um, but I mean it was still I mean it's still you know it's still Condé Nast and it was also just I mean I've written for Gourmet but like my goodness if we're talking about test kitchens so um, we used to call the Condé Nast building the Death Star <laughs> um, and so on there was one floor, half of it was the cafeteria. And that we're talking like that's like half a city block, right? And so, and the other half was a gourmet test kitchen. And every single person working in the test kitchen had their own kitchen, right? So that was their it was like desk. A school. Wow. It was like incredible. Yeah. I think it, it's so funny because I guess it's Ireland's size, but also you know, and therefore population and therefore readership and therefore revenue, yada, yada, yada. But magazines are a completely different thing here. And I don't think there was ever, I've been editor of mostly all the food magazines here, Food & Wine, Yes Chef, uh, Easy Food, which is Ireland's biggest selling food magazine. And I think out of all of those, you know, it was always, you were always putting them together on a budget with like a skeletal staff. Um, and we never had the I used to look at the credits of all the magazines, you know, that I'd have um, I used to have lots of um, subscriptions to all the magazines. You used to drool over the mastheads. And drool over the mastheads <laughs> of the credits of like, oh, my God, look how many contributors they have. Oh, my God, look, they've got a, a staff editor, this editor, that editor. And then that's before you even got to the just the writers. And, the, you know, I just a test kitchen was something you dreamed about because we would test the recipes at the point of the photo shoots um, on magazines that I worked on. Now that has changed. I mean, Easy Food have their own test kitchen for a long time now. You know, I suppose it took a lot longer for that, for the money to be put into that sort of thing here. And it wasn't that the recipes were not good or, you know, not, and, and nobody wanted the same ethics that were done, the work ethic that was in other magazines, it's just the budget, I think, and the readership weren't there. So for for me, it was always you always wanted those things. You were always asking for those things, but you wouldn't always get them. Um, so test kitchens are definitely something that are newer in Ireland when it comes to magazines um, than, yeah, than they are in other countries like you're, you guys are talking about. But um, I do think here as well, when you're talking about um, I feel like that's why Easy Food is probably the best selling magazine here because it's a recipe magazine um, and it's beautifully shot. They have their own test kitchen now and, you know, their own stylists, their own in-house photographers and they're testing constantly. They're they're working with brands constantly. They're working with writers constantly. But it's just it is in its simplistic form. It is just a recipe magazine that's very good and the recipes work. Um, and I think that's why people don't have there's no there's none of that kind of what you're talking about with gourmet or anything in terms of the food isn't elitist the food isn't out of your grasp it's everyday food for everyday people and I think that's what Irish people um want from the magazines here whereas if they want something aspirational or at least they look to magazines from other countries um I feel like uh, most of the people I know here would would buy you know Easy Food as a magazine to use here at home, but they would, you know, have a subscription to um, Bon Appetit or something else, you know, then that would be their kind of aspirational food porn as such. 
Yeah, I just think, yeah, the magazines before it was like aspirational. I want to be really wealthy, dripping with gold. And now the, the magazines have shifted to more. I want to be traveling in the Himalayas and discover something. It's, yeah, it's it was shifted say, to travel. It's shifted to travel. Has, and right? for nerdiness. Sure. Before it was like Paris, Michelin star restaurants and Louis Vuitton trunks. And now it's travel, but not travel like, oh, I went. No, no, no. Travel like. But that's because food yeah. is also people are writing about food experiences. experiences. And people want an experience yeah. with food. They don't just want to. You know, in some ways, people don't just want to eat in a restaurant. They want to know the chef. They want the experience while they're there. And it's the same thing when you travel. And we've spoken about this in other episodes. But like you want to eat with locals. You want to cook with locals. You want to you want that experience. And that's what people are writing about. And I they want to know who's behind the behind food. The they yes. want to know who the chef is. They want to know who um, the producers are before it was just you know, these privileged yeah, people I mean, traveling and recounting these stories. But I think it was, meeting. I think there was, I, I remember, I feel like in the States at least, there was almost this severe gourmet Anthony Bourdain nexus, right, that mm-hmm. happened with food reporting. Yeah. And, you know, and what people were, you know, curious about in stories. And then, and definitely Bourdain was driving it, I think. And then, and then that leads on to Lucky Peach. You know, um, which, of course, you know, we can talk about Lucky Peach and how it's toxic masculine style culture. It was a wonderful magazine. (laughs) I think as well um, here, another um, thing that's really charming was kind of the there was a lot of women, um, you know, writing for newspapers from a very like back through the decades before there were maybe food magazines and I think the Irish Farmers Journal you know that's where Myrtle Allen first started her column back in the 50s I think Um, and you know the Irish Independent some of those they always uh, you know we were talking about more elabority Theodora Fitzgibbon Theodora Fitzgibbon these women these these housewives were given voice to and their recipes and I think that comes from the the ICA as well you know the Irish Country Women Association have been writing recipes and getting them published for decades here but not necessarily the glossy mags you know the glossy mags were kind of newer uh, here Um, Monica Sheridan also had some fabulous articles in the Irish Times I love going through the archives but in one she was just slating the food establishment and I find that she was so much more critical of food and was able to just say what she thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to search her articles, but one, she was criticizing um, a little bit, criticizing French food in Ireland um, and saying how, you know, there, 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 there were no other options for Irish food. And it was so negative about Irish food. But anyway, just fascinating. Uh, there were a lot of very w- good women writers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Honor Moore, um, you know, she was amazing as well. And uh, Marlon Bryce. I have actually my mum's cookbook at home. And it, when I say her cookbook, it's her just her recipe book that she would write her favorites into. And um, there's a cutout. There's a f- good few cutouts from from newspapers. And one of Marilyn's uh, recipes is in there. And Marilyn is now a member of, or she's a member of the Food Writers Guild that I am now a member of. And I showed it to her and she was just so chuffed to see that my mum had cut out her recipe back. I mean, back in the 80s and kept it, you know, and now it's been passed down to me. And it's just a really nice thing. OK, and now to wrap it up. Can we say, what's the future of food magazines? Because a lot of things have changed. Um, When I was a student in Cordon Bleu and I did some internships in magazines, 
I remember there were five famous food photographers in London. Obviously, that doesn't happen anymore. So what's the future of food magazines? What do you guys think? At the moment, I'm starting to see a real trend here in Ireland where um, obviously magazines have gone online. We didn't get into that too much, but I guess, you know, there is digital food magazines now. But the other thing that I'm seeing a trend of here uh, that I want to talk about was subscription newsletters. So I see a lot of um, a lot of independent people who are and maybe this is the evolution of a blog as well, because Mm. there was a lot of blogs before. Mm. But now you are paying for content um, to be delivered to your inbox once a month um, in a newsletter form that is a kind of an e-magazine Um, And it could be from a chef, it could be from a food writer, a journalist. It's different sources, but I've seen a few of those now appearing here. And people, it's this thing of paying for content, because obviously when food blogs really became popular and were uh, uh, everywhere, it's free content. You're putting your own voice out there. It's a method for you to be able to self-publish online. But that has come full circle and people went back to reliable sources in the media, like the sources we've all talked about here, those tried and tested sources. And now it's coming from these tried and tested and trusted voices that are emerging from food media. And I think that's definitely going to be something that's going to continue. So you're paying Hmm. for food content that's behind a paywall that's been delivered to your inbox. And that's going to be definitely something that's going to continue. But you don't think that that's going to eventually consolidate into a magazine? Definitely. Be- so it's kind it's of almost, like we're going to go yeah. back to, to I think. I do. F- like blogs now, if you, if you look carefully and pay attention, so many blogs have the same recipe. Like if yeah. you look for, mm. I don't know, yeah. Vietnamese spring rolls and you go and it's one recipe and then it's another. It's almost mm-hmm. like as if bots were creating these blog accounts just to generate income. But one interesting thing um, about magazines is that before magazines had really large advertising budgets, but as influencers have come online and we've realized that there are a lot of people who are very talented at creating content, either photography or styling. I wouldn't say recipes. Like I mm-hmm. think recipes are like, but but the the styling, the you know, creating Visually, something different, yeah, or or writing differently. I think that's driven a lot of money away from magazines. But I get the feeling that looking at the subscriber market and how things are going, I do think that there will be a space for really good magazines with really good writers in the future. But they're not going to be obviously. Yeah. I think they'll be online. What do you think, May? I mean, I think there's going to be an emergence of um, like the small books. Um, You know, uh, we talked to um, Jim Osland and he seems to think that there's going to be that. Um, In part, it's just because it's so expensive Mm. to get, especially a food magazine, because you if you really as as D, as you were saying, right, if people are looking at recipes, that means you need a test kitchen. You know, like you can't, you know, if you're not just browsing, you need a test kitchen and then you need writing staff and you need fact checkers and you it's like there is it's an expensive and the photography and styling costs a lot of money as well a huge amount of money um but you know i do i hope that there is going to be um you know uh, magazines back on the market because one of the things that i miss i think is you know both about books and magazines right now is browsing you know when you go mm, somewhere yeah. and you're like i want to pick up a copy of i don't know whatever like noble rot you know and then you see what's on 
each side yeah. of that magazine and then you kind of get swept up in that. And I love Noble Rot actually just yeah. to say as well. It's but, such a good magazine. Um, so I think and and obviously with books as well but that browsing aspect right and you know and it's also you know it's almost like when you're browsing it's also there can be a social aspect too because like someone might pick up a magazine next to you and like you'll be like oh why are you mm. reading that you know and um, so yeah I do hope that magazines come back. I think in one sense, um, I've seen a lot of food magazines and we've seen it here with Food and Wine, the Irish version, going into a newspaper supplement. And I do think for me, the Observer Food Monthly has always been uh, like something I've adored getting. I still buy it every month, um, the Observer in the UK. And, you know, that seems like it has a very strong future still. There's still a a readership there um, and it's it, it hasn't. Um, gotten you haven't seen it getting thinner in terms of pagination um, the photography is still good the content still good so I just think there might be um, as well as we've seen a rise in the amount of people reading newspapers again um, especially Sunday papers right Sunday papers and the amount of supplement magazines that are in them at the moment and inserts that might be a way as well for food magazines to survive is that yes food and wine here couldn't survive in a printed glossy form but it has survived and evolved into you know a printed uh, magazine supplement Hey guys I just want to take a minute to interrupt this episode to talk about the Headstuff Podcast Network uh, it's Ireland's largest podcast network for anyone who doesn't know. And we are part of that, of course. And they don't just have food shows. They have politics, um, comedy, everything, really. There's so many independent podcasters. And right now we're about to trip, play you a trailer for another podcast on the network that we'd like to promote. And we think that you would really love to listen to. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. Headstuff is Ireland's largest podcast network. There's something for everyone here, gossip, social justice, film, politics, and yes, of course, food, which would be us. So what does being a Headstuff Plus member mean? Well, for five euros a month, you get early access to shows, hip merch and bonus materials. For example, in our Spice Bags journey, we have had so many conversations that we reluctantly had to trim from the show. And you can find them here, like Ahmed Didi's Michelin Education, the infectiously wonderful um, Venezuelan food producers and chefs who have made Ireland their home. But more importantly, by being a member, you are helping support Irish podcasts and enabling this community of creative voices to continue. For more information about how to become a member, visit headstuffpodcast.com. Okay, one last thing. Favorite food magazine? Oh, favorite food magazine? At the moment, in print right now. Like, or, so like, or online. Or online. Um, or in, or it doesn't have to be still. I'm, yeah, I mean, I really enjoy Gastro Obscura. Um, oh, nice and uh, and I really love um, and I still do Serious Eats and Eater and um, Cherry Bomb. Cherry Bomb is excellent. And Jerry, do you guys know Jerry? It's like this no. beautiful gay 
gay magazine for fo- about food. Uh-huh. I hope it's still in print. It's so beautiful. Like, but you know, um, so those would be the ones off the top of my head. The new server is no longer, I think, in print. It's online. Um, and but I feel like they're really pushing the sort of National Geographic aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, talking about National Geographic, National Geographic has a food magazine now. And yeah. everybody's writing, mm. like Fuchsia Dunlop, um, Catherine Eden. Um, and it's Corinna a beautiful, yeah, it's she a beautiful wrote magazine. Well. Yeah. I would say, I was thinking that's a magazine that I definitely yeah. get a subscription to. But I love... I have a subscription to Nacho, yeah. but the original... Yeah. Uh, yeah. One magazine that we didn't talk about that has amazing food styling always is El Atable in France. Oh, yes. Because we didn't talk about French yeah. magazines or Italian, but this is a magazine that always ha- was, I, to me, way ahead of the game. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we always talk about, you know, in English, whatever, but, you know, these these editors at El had gorgeous and still do. Um, and you can find that also online, but it's still printed. Okay. I know we spoke about it a bit, but Food and Travel magazine, I love, I always buy, I just adore it. I have so many copies of it. And Le Gourmand, I mentioned, I still have a subscription to that. Definitely. We'll put a, a lot of these links up yeah. so you can find it. And definitely we'll also put the Libby um, link for, for those of you based and, in Ireland. And yeah. any other useful tools. Thanks, guys. That was a lot thank of you. fun. Um, thank you for listening and um, see you soon. And as always, you can, um, for further information, you can contact us on social media through we are on Twitter, we're on Instagram and we're on Facebook at Spice Bags Pod. Um, and you can also email us at hello at spicebags.ie and our website spicebags.ie has a beautiful blog that we're very proud of up there. Um, if you want to check out for extra content, you can get um, Q&A's with people in the international food community here and also recipes and our famous shopping guides, of course. So make sure and check that out. If you like what you heard or better yet, have a question or response or comment to anything that we said today, we really want to hear from you. So please contact us at Instagram at Spice Bags Pod. Twitter as well is the same Spice Bags Pod. Or you can email us at Spice Bags Pod at gmail.com. 